It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. It was the week Boris Johnson told his cabinet and the country to prepare to trade with the EU like Australia from January the 1st. Except for the fact that Australia has no trade deal with the EU and is on the other side of the world, this was meant to sound reassuring. We need to be very, very clear. It's now a strong possibility, strong possibility, that uh, we will have a uh, solution that's much more like an Australian relationship with the EU than a Canadian relationship with the EU. That doesn't mean it's a, a bad thing. There are plenty of ways, uh, as I've said, that we can turn that to the advantage of, of both sides. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times. And as you've probably noticed from the absence of his lilting Geordie accent, Seb's away. This week, you've got me, George Parker. In this week's episode, we'll be focusing on the story of the moment, the bane of my Christmas planning, Brexit. With negotiations on a trade deal stalled again, we'll be looking at whether the process can be salvaged, with Jim Brunsden, sleep-deprived after an all-nighter at a European Council in Brussels, and Sam Lowe, an expert on trade talks from the Centre for European Reform. And later, we'll be talking about the one bit of the Brexit process that was resolved this week, arrangements for Northern Ireland. Has it really removed the threat of a hard Irish sea border? Joining us will be our Peter Foster and Jess Sargent from the Institute for Government, who've probably forgotten more about the Northern Ireland Protocol than I ever knew. But let's get started with Brexit talks in Brussels with Jim and Sam. Jim, we're speaking on Friday morning after a marathon summit session last night. I hope you've had a coffee. What, if anything, has happened so far on the subject of Brexit? At the summit, um, to be honest, not a lot. So the EU leaders spent all night, as you said, up debating something quite different, actually, rather than discussing tariffs with the UK and fish quotas. They were discussing coal mines and emission targets with Poland because Warsaw is objecting or has been objecting to some new EU environmental ambitions. So that's what Emmanuel Macron, Angela Merkel and their colleagues spent all night doing. There was a very, very brief point on Brexit this morning where Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, debriefed them on her dinner with Boris Johnson earlier this week. It was understandably very downbeat. She said she didn't want to put a percentage on it. But at the moment, it looks like there's a higher probability of a no-deal outcome than a deal, but that negotiations would continue today and over the weekend, and a view would be taken on Sunday. So that's where we are. No leaders intervened, probably because basically it wasn't planned that they would, but also maybe they were too knackered to, to be honest, by this point. But it is telling, actually, how little Brexit there was at the summit. Neither Angela Merkel nor Emmanuel Macron nor Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez mentioned Brexit at all when they arrived at the summit yesterday, when they listed all the topics that were going to be discussed. And Charles Michel also made a point of saying that there would be no long discussion on Brexit. And Charles Michel is the European Council president. He was the one chairing the meeting. So Brexit very deliberately pushed to the margins. Is that a good thing from Boris Johnson's point of view, that the leaders didn't seem to discuss it much? Um, I think it's a sign that the dinner didn't yield a breakthrough. And it's a sign that at the moment, leaders are happy to continue leaving it in the hands of the negotiators. 
I don't think the EU is resigned to a no deal yet. And I think the EU is aware that a no deal would have serious consequences for both sides. But there's also a sense on the EU side that the Brits are always obsessed with summits. They're always obsessed with getting beyond Brussels in some way. You know, I think the dream UK scenario is just to hammer the thing out directly with Mr. Macron and Mrs. Merkel. And I think the EU is basically denying the UK that. The EU is saying we are not going to let this topic come and, and take over our agenda. We have other stuff to worry about, which they legitimately do. I mean, if you look at what they were dealing with at the summit, it was kind of existential issues to keep the EU project on the rails, settling a new seven-year budget, talking about the rule of law, relations with the neighbourhood, climate. They do have other things to worry about. Yeah, and the departure of Britain from the EU has created a vacancy for the role of awkward squad, hasn't it, which the Poles and the Hungarians seem to be happy to fill. So let's just get a flavour of what people were saying as they arrived in Brussels. First, Stefan Löfven, the Swedish Prime Minister. I'm a bit more gloomy today, as far as I can hear. There is no progress uh, made uh, the recent days. It's, it's uh, problematic, of course. So, so that, is, um, that is a huge challenge. Uh, we've always said that we, we are preparing for the worst, hoping for the best. Um, and now it seems, it seems difficult. It's a difficult situation. And Michal Martin, the Irish Taoiseach. Well, first of all, I would say that, look, the situation is serious, uh, but I think it's in everybody's interests, fundamentally, that we reach a deal. There shouldn't be any winners and losers in these negotiations. But it will be very difficult. And as we know from last night's uh, talks, uh, both sides are uh, apart, particularly on the issue of level playing field um, and fisheries. So um, those are the key situations for us. Yeah. Now, Sam Lowe, the talks are foundering. We know fish, of course, and governance, but people seem to think those can be fixed. But the really big sticking point, the sort of ideological one, is on the level playing field for fair competition. And in particular, something which is known in Brussels jargon as the evolution mechanism to ensure that rules in the UK and the EU remain in step as they evolve over time. Can you just explain what it is exactly and how it would work? <laughs> yes, so there's a lot of jargon around this. And to be honest, it's actually quite difficult to exactly find out what's being discussed at the moment because the different sides are giving different briefings. But we know that this is born of the concept of non-regression, the idea that the UK and the EU should agree not to roll back existing levels of labour and environmental protections in future. And then there was this question that was raised, well, what if one side lifts their standards? And the initial EU proposal was that both the UK and the EU could at that moment mutually agree that the floor from which they are unable to regress is lifted too. So it sets a new benchmark in the future. But the UK rejected this for one reason or another. And it led the EU to consider the question of, well, what if we lift our standards and the UK doesn't follow? And it's led to a proposal, or at least we believe it's led to a proposal that states that if the EU lifts its level of environmental protection and the UK doesn't match it, then if there is a negative effect on the EU's competitiveness as a result, then it could lead to the EU introducing rebalancing measures. Those would be tariffs. So that's where we are now. But I do just wonder if some of this is theatre in that it's created what seems on the surface quite an unreasonable ask being made by the EU, but it's also created an opportunity for the UK to accept the initial proposal that the floor could only be lifted upon mutual consent and then frame it as a win domestically. Do you see this as the big attack on British sovereignty that Boris Johnson seems to think it is? I mean, after all, British sovereignty involves us deciding whether we do or don't want to have a trade deal with the European Union. It's a commercial transaction, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so I struggle with the Johnson 
sort of articulation of sovereignty. Because the way I view this is it's just a choice. Every trade agreement has benefits and it has conditions. If those conditions prove too arduous, you can give up the benefits. And that's what's being proposed here. I actually think all talk of sovereignty disguises the fact that the actual decision being faced by the Prime Minister is whether to accept tariffs on day one because he's failed to reach an agreement or accept that tariffs could be reimposed in future if he breaches the terms of the agreement and rolls back existing levels of environmental or labour protections. And to me, that's quite an easy choice. You go for tariffs later if you actually do something wrong, rather than accepting all of the pain up front. I mean, it does seem like an economic no-brainer. Jim Bronston, was this idea of the evolution mechanism, however you want to describe it, was that introduced, as the Brits say, at the request of Emmanuel Macron last week? And is there a misunderstanding, do you think, of each side's position, which could prove dangerous in the endgame? As Sam said, these ideas have been around for a while. I think they've mutated through various forms during the course of the negotiation. I mean, lest anyone forget, what this goes back to actually is when the EU member states, with France very much in the lead, when they toughened the mandate given to their negotiator, Michel Barnier. Michel Barnier's draft mandate, which he proposed to the member states and said, give me this as the basis for the negotiations, didn't have all this stuff in. What it said is that the two sides should remain aligned when it came to state aid, but in areas such as environmental law and labour law, it was a straightforward principle of non-regression. It was saying, let's agree we maintain the common high standards in place when the UK exits the transition period. Then that was then gold-plated by the member states who wrote in new language saying basically the level playing field must endure over time and must ensure equivalent outcomes over time, a language of that kind of nature. And that gets us to where we are now, because ever since then, the EU side has been wrestling to design some kind of mechanism that achieves that, which the Brits might actually accept, but at the same time, something that doesn't just require the UK to slavishly apply new EU rules every time they're adopted, word for word. Something which acknowledges that there's going to be two different regulatory orbits, but which somehow tries to ensure that there's equivalent outcomes and that no matter what happens, the level playing field's maintained. So you, you manage the divergence. Divergence can happen, but you manage the outcomes of it. So the level playing field's always there, even if you have to use tariffs as a last resort. So basically, that then gets you to last week, where we had a situation where you had a, a hawkish group of member states, again, including the French, but also the Dutch, the Danes, the Italians and the Spanish were in that group as well for slightly different reasons, saying to Barnier, you've already given quite a lot to the Brits in these negotiations. There have been real concessions made compared to the original mandate, but some version of this has to survive and it has to be a version that will guarantee the level playing field will exist, whatever. Okay. Sam, just if you were playing fantasy negotiation and if you were in the shoes of David Frost, the British negotiator, what would you do to break the impasse? So if I was in David Frost's shoes, which is a slightly frightening thought, I would put back on the table the EU's original proposal that states that we'll agree to non-regression. The existing levels of protections will endure. And over time, as our individual environmental and labour rights change and perhaps tighten, we can have a discussion as to whether that floor should be lifted and it can be decided upon mutual consent. So I think that's the way through. It gets rid of this idea that the EU are unilaterally going to be holding the UK to high standards and try and lock us into a divergence or a convergence pathway. It leaves it at the UK's decision as to whether it wants to accept penalties in future or not, or if the floor should be lifted. And it just gives the UK a bit more autonomy. And I think the focus in terms of the language should be on exactly what Jim said. It's in terms of equivalent outcomes. We're not talking about the UK having to adopt EU rules in future. We're just talking about the idea that if we both agree to, we will continue to adopt rules that grant an equivalent level of protection in the environmental and labour space. 
I must admit, I've always thought there would be a deal because, frankly, both sides need and want a deal. Um, Sam, I think you just described there very clearly a possible way through. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Jim Brunston, first of all. Do you think there's going to be a deal? Yes. Yeah. I've been convinced since the start of the talks that there would be because simply I just don't see enough here to constitute an insurmountable stumbling block. Both sides maybe at times have misrepresented the other's position. Certainly what the EU is not asking here at this point is alignment. The the EU is not asking the UK, as I said, to just copy paste EU rules, for example, like Norway does when it comes to single market regulations as a member of the European Economic Area. There is a huge grey zone to play around in between just simple non-regression, so we won't water down the stuff that's in place at the end of the transition period, and dynamic alignment. So the idea that the UK should just follow EU rules no matter where they lead. And so what you've got to do is creatively play around in that space in a way that gives the EU comfort that the level playing field will endure over time, which goes back to Sam's point about equivalent outcomes, outcomes-based process, but yet also gives the UK comfort that it is sovereign from a regulatory point of view. I can't believe that can't be achieved. When you look at it, there is no reason on the face of it why that can't be achieved. And Jim, you and I have covered Brussels negotiations and trade deals and the like for many, many years. And what we haven't really talked about here is the European Union lawyers who are very skilled at operating in the space you've just been describing, pouring a load of fudge over any agreement that allows the leaders to claim their own victory. And frankly, most people don't understand most of what we've just been talking about, do they? So you would think that there is a possible landing ground for a deal, I think. Sam, I'm going to ask you the same question. Boris Johnson said this week that no deal was looking very likely. Do you agree with him? No, I still think a deal is more likely than not. And I've thought this since the beginning of the talks. And the reason I believe that is that the landing zone is just really obvious. And it's a landing zone, which I believe the UK and Boris Johnson can sell us at home as a victory. The UK will not be signing up to EU subsidy rules now and forever. It will not be signing up to follow EU uh, labour and environmental protections now and forever. It will have got concessions from the EU on fish. It can be portrayed quite easily as a UK negotiating victory. And on the EU side, it doesn't really care how the UK talks about it at home, so long as it has the legal mechanisms in place that allow it to defend its market in the event that the UK takes a course of action that could give the UK, in their mind, an unfair competitive advantage. So I think the landing zone's there. It's just a case now of actually, I suppose, to torture the metaphor, landing the plane. It's a case of just doing it. And we've been dragging it out a bit. And I do just wonder if we look back on the last couple of weeks as the necessary theatre and choreography that preceded a deal and uh, also created the space to sell that deal domestically. Thank you very much, guys, for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure. If talks on a free trade deal were going badly this week, there was at least one negotiating success. Britain and the EU finally agreed on the detailed implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol, part of Britain's EU withdrawal deal. Michael Gove and his opposite number, Maros Sefcovic, European Commission Vice President, sat down for nine hours on Monday in Brussels and quietly got on with fixing the outstanding issues. This was Mr Gove. I'm pleased to say that under the agreement that we've reached, Northern Ireland businesses selling to consumers or using goods in Northern Ireland will be free of all tariffs, whether that's Nissan cars from Sunderland or lamb from Montgomeryshire. We heard throughout the year that traders needed time to adapt their systems. That's why we've got a grace period for supermarkets to update their procedures. 
and our agreement also prevents any disruption at the end of the transition period on the movement of chilled meats. British sausages will continue to make their way to Belfast and Ballymena in the new year. Thank goodness for that. So, Jess Sargent, can you firstly just remind people of what the whole issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol is all about? So the Northern Ireland Protocol creates special arrangements for Northern Ireland once the UK formally leaves the jurisdiction of EU law at the end of transition period. The Northern Ireland will continue to apply EU law in certain areas like agriculture and other kind of single market regulatory areas. But what that means is that there will need to be new checks and controls and potentially paperwork on goods coming from Great Britain into Northern Ireland to check that they comply with those new EU laws. Now, we've been waiting on some of the details of exactly how that will work. It looks like a lot of those issues have now been agreed through the Joint Committee. And so we'll have to see what happens on the 1st of January when the protocol comes into effect and those new processes will need to start. So this breakthrough was supposed to have lifted the mood around the separate talks that were going on in Brussels on a free trade agreement. Did it? I think it's difficult to tell at this point what implications the decisions of the Joint Committee will have for the future relationship negotiations. I mean, on one hand, it shows that the UK and the EU can find a way through quite difficult issues. You know, Northern Ireland Protocol was potentially one of the most contentious and controversial issues with the UK, obviously, proposing to take those powers to break international law. So on one hand, I think there's some goodwill here that could be capitalised on. Um, The other interpretation you could take is that the decisions of the Joint Committee will stand deal or no deal. And by resolving some of those outstanding issues, for example, ensuring that goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland won't be subject to tariffs, or at least the vast majority of them, then potentially it makes a no deal almost safer for the UK and for the EU, knowing that those Northern Ireland issues have been resolved. So you could kind of see it either way, but certainly it's a positive development, not least for Northern Ireland businesses. But Peter Foster, after this agreement was announced, Boris Johnson said he was going to scrap the controversial legal clauses that would have allowed British ministers to override the EU withdrawal treaty in relation to Northern Ireland. Now, you broke that story in the first place, an incredible story. What do you make of the whole saga? It's been a pretty sorry saga, George, is what it's been. But at the end of the day, the two sides have managed to agree how this protocol is going to be implemented. Those notwithstanding clause of threat to break the law were designed to try and force the EU into taking a more imaginative, flexible approach on some key areas. The need to complete paperwork for goods going from Northern Ireland to Great Britain. That's been done. The EU has done away with formal need for declarations in exchange for the UK providing data from its own systems. It also looked to try and circumscribe the extent to which the protocol requirement that Northern Ireland should follow EU state aid rules for goods shouldn't cut into UK decisions. And they've tried to put a sort of limit around that. Whether it's legally watertight, we'll have to see, but that's another tick. And the extent to which goods that are at risk of going into the single market in Ireland should attract tariffs. Now, that's been sorted. They've come up with a formula for how you calculate which goods are at risk and which are not. But that may all change if we end up in a no deal. Uh, There will be considerable strains on this agreement if we end up in a no deal and both sides applying full tariffs on each other, because that will create a big differential between the arrangement for Northern Ireland, uh, for goods going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland, and goods going from Great Britain into Ireland. Uh, And that differential, I think, is going to cause quite a lot of tensions when this system comes into force. 
This idea that the British government might break international law obviously drew heavy criticism from across party lines, including, I think, from every single living former British prime minister. But I was speaking to one minister this week who was suggesting, oh, well, you know, it was a bit of a rough tactic, but actually it forced the EU to negotiate harder. Do you think that's true to any extent? Did the fact that this threat was on the table actually make it easier for the British side to get an acceptable deal on Northern Ireland? I'm honestly not sure that it did, George. In fact, if anything, I think it's poisoned the other side of the negotiation. One of the reasons there's so much inertia on the free trade negotiation is that there is absolutely no trust. A lot of these issues were in the process of being resolved before some of the more hawkish members of Boris Johnson's team, led by David Frost, forced the issue by tabling these notwithstanding clauses threatening to break the law. People need to be clear that this agreement is not a rollover by the EU. Michael Coe is very skillful at presenting it as everything will be the same, we'll leave whole and entire. We won't. After the grace period, all products of plant and animal origin will need export health certificates. Everything will need an import declaration going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. Yes, goods that are going into Northern Ireland directly and going nowhere else will pay no tariffs, but you'll have to prove that your good is going into Northern Ireland and nowhere else. Manufacturing inputs, intermediate inputs, all of those are at risk and will have to show that they're not going anywhere else. And that is all paperwork, cost and complexity. The government's doing its best to reduce that. It's got a £200 million trader support scheme. It's actually announced it will pay for the export health certificates. But for traders in Northern Ireland, this is going to be a big change. And for consumers and for the politics of Northern Ireland, I think it's really unclear how it will play out once this protocol hits the road. Well, Jess, I was going to ask about that because Michael Gove was insisting again, as Boris Johnson always insists, that this arrangement doesn't put a border in the Irish Sea. I know it's a question of semantics, but would you say there is a border there? I mean, you can certainly say that there are new checks and processes and requirements that weren't there before. Whether or not you consider that a border, as you say, is a question of semantics. But just to come back to your question you asked Peter about whether breaking international law was a successful negotiating tactic. I think actually where we've seen the EU make the biggest concessions are on those issues around agri-food and supermarket supply chains. And as Peter says, those are only temporary. But actually, I think the impetus for that has come from the kind of tireless campaigning from Northern Ireland businesses, particularly in the retail sector, that they need kind of special mitigations in this area. And also we saw that really significant intervention in the form of a joint letter from the First Minister and the Deputy First Minister. So actually, I think where we've seen the most flexibility from the EU and the kind of biggest wins, I suppose, has been where the communities in Northern Ireland have been able to come together and set out what they need, rather than necessarily the UK government's negotiating tactics. You mentioned this uh, grace period. What happens at the end of the grace period to the famous British banger, which is supposed to be winging its way to the dinner tables of Balamino and Banger? Well, it's very unclear. Actually, the command paper that the UK government published the other day suggested that long-term arrangements for the export of sausages were still intended to be resolved through the future relationship negotiations. Now, that obviously leaves a big question mark as to what happens if we do end up with no deal. So I think that issue is very much not resolved yet. I mean, it's possible that in the event of no deal, the Joint Committee might look at this again and try and create special arrangements for Northern Ireland. But although the grace period is obviously welcome, there are still long-term questions that need to be resolved. And Peter, you mentioned this £200 million trader support scheme. Um, This is costing £200 million of taxpayers' money to overcome a border which supposedly doesn't exist, I think, on an ongoing basis as well. What's your anticipation of what things will look like 
on trade between mainland Britain and Northern Ireland on January the 1st in the light of what's been agreed this week? It's going to be quite sticky. Talking to hauliers and haulage groups, there's just not been enough time to get all of their data sets, the master data cleansed. When you look at the presentations that the Trader Support Service has done to business, they're frankly quite baffling. These grace periods, they are going to help. They are going to make a difference, I think. We probably will avoid real shortages, etc., in the first few days. But business is going to struggle to adjust because the grace periods don't do away with the need for the paperwork down the line. And just, Sergeant, just finally, does this resolve Joe Biden's concerns about the impact of Brexit on the Northern Ireland peace process? It resolves the immediate concerns about those international law-breaking clauses. But there are other issues that potentially could have bearings for the peace process, particularly if there isn't a deal. So, I mean, a lot of the cross-border issues on cooperation between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland could be quite impacted in the event of no deal. We're thinking here specifically about security cooperation. There's issues around whether Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland will still be able to share data if there's no deal. So I certainly think the Good Friday Agreement still needs further protection. And in the event of no deal, there is a lot more work to be done to ensure that it doesn't impact on the island of Ireland. Okay. And um, Peter, I'm just going to ask you the question I was asking Jim and Sam Lowe earlier. Do you think there is going to be a wider deal on the future relationship before the end of the year? I'm worried, George, that there isn't actually. And, And the reason I'm worried is because in previous iterations of these negotiations, there's always been a kind of urgency at the death Uh, Both sides genuinely worried when we were talking about whether or not there'd be an extension to Article 50 to avoid the deal. This time, on both sides, you don't get the same sense of urgency, frankly. I've been talking to senior diplomats during the European Council the last couple of days, and I feel resignation on both sides. And that's what worries me. It's not that there can't be a deal. It's not that it can't be done. But I'm just worried that both sides have decided that they'd rather do a no deal than some kind of fudge the bookies seem to have cut their odds on a deal from something like an 80% probability to slightly less than uh, 50% now. Would you be going out and sticking some money on no deal? I think I might. I think I might. I wouldn't, it's the first time I've really sort of thought that, but I just can see this process bleeding out really on the table. There needs to be an intervention, both sides, whether it's from the markets, George, whether it's from the cabinet, Gove and Rishi Sunak, you know, taking Johnson aside and saying, you don't want to do this, whether it's Merkel or Macron. But I don't feel it at the moment. I don't see where it's coming from. We may get there as we get closer, still 20 odd days to go. But right now, I'd be concerned. Jess, what do you think? I think I would agree with Peter. I'm certainly a lot less optimistic than I had been previously. I think, as Peter says, it will take some movement from the Prime Minister and potentially the EU to be able to agree to that landing zone, which negotiators have probably been able to identify. I think there is a question as to what pressure the Prime Minister might be under to get a deal that is less visible. Obviously, um, lots of proponents of no deal or who are concerned about UK sovereignty have been quite vocal, but there might be some slightly more subtle pressures that could ultimately um, impact the Prime Minister's decision. But I think we will have to see what happens in the run-up till Sunday. And yes, just have to wait and see. So after that earlier dose of optimism from uh, Sam and Jim, 
afraid we're going to be leave, leaving you on a slightly less optimistic note. But um, Jess and Peter, thank you very much for joining us today. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And why not leave a review or rating of the show? It's a great way to share it. Payne's Politics was presented by me, George Parker, and produced by Anna Dedda and Josh Delamere. Sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.